This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. I believe one of the bravest things we can do is take the first step to tell our story. I also believe that therapy can and should have a place in our everyday lives. Valeria interviews Crystal McGrady. She has been a therapist in the South Florida region for about five years now. She is concurrently working full-time as a medical social worker within a skilled nursing facility. She specializes in working with those who have trauma experiences in and out of the medical field and those who may be having transitions within their family systems. She works with the practice Buena Vida Wellness to provide walk and talk services with clients. She utilizes ACT, CBT, solution-focused and motivational interviewing when supporting the clients and residents she serves. She has also recently been exploring the use of tarot, a new passion in her personal life, and is really enjoying how the two are becoming intertwined. In her free time, she loves to take dog walks with her fiancé, catch up with her book club, and explore her local community. Meet Crystal at BuenaVidaFL.com backslash Crystal-McGrady-LCSW. Here's the interview with Crystal McGrady. In your own words, who is Crystal McGrady? Uh, well, in terms of this podcast, I'm a longtime listener, first-time speaker. Um, so I am, I'm a lot of different things. Uh, right now, I'm uh, employed as a medical social worker, and I do uh, private practice therapy on the side. Um, I also love to read. Uh, it's one of my passions that's gotten me through a lot of hard times and great times in life. Um, I love to try new things and I'm a little bit of the introverted side than extroverted. So as much as I love to meet new people, I think I enjoy spending the quality time with them more. Um, love being outdoors and uh, sharing what I do with others. It's nice to find a community that appreciates that. So my second official question for you, Krista, is about mental health. How do you define mental health these days? What is to be mentally healthy? That's a great question. Uh, I haven't, I haven't thought about that because I think it's a very, I think it's a very personal definition, right? Because we, you know, we have the textbook definition, you know, what might make someone mentally healthy or how society views mental health. Um, I know for me, it means that I'm working to put my needs first um, and taking the time to do that because I know, you know, self care. We hear it a lot in the media, especially since the pandemic, um, but trying to have a routine. And for me, it, it really means if I'm comfortable, not only noticing when I might be having an uncomfortable emotion, 
but noticing it and still trying to move through that um, to challenge myself. And it also helps me, you know, try to rein it in when I feel like I should be listening more when that comes up. I love that answer. Yeah, it's very personal and has to do with self-care. I heard mm -hmm. something today. I think it's one of the articles that I read that was referred by you that they mentioned turning self-care into soul care. I think has mm -hmm. to do with one of the topics that we will discuss today about the tarot therapy or introducing that to therapy. So that really, it's really beautiful, that idea, self-care and soul care. So with that in mind, and let me ask you this question. Do you have any spiritual practices or spiritual views of yourself in the world? Uh, I'm working to develop them. Um, right now, what I do is part of, like you said, the soul care Um as part of my spirituality is, um, so I, uh, read tarot cards, uh, for clients and I've only recently started pulling for myself because that's always been a, a scary point for oh, me. Yeah. It feels very vulnerable for me to do that for my own. Um, it feels like I'm playing with fate sometimes. Um, so I, I try to start, um, my day in terms of soul care with, um, pulling a tarot card, uh, and taking time to reflect on what that might mean or, being open to what that might be bringing in, um, especially with my work in medical social work, you never really know what you're going to get. Um, so it, it helps me be very open and, and leave a lot of the judgment behind that, you know, some medical clinicians can bring into medical fields. Wow, I love that word, open, being open. That almost to me translates into love and healing by being open. So many amazing things can happen. Possibilities, mm -hmm. really, being open to possibilities, to life itself. What do you feel is the purpose of the human experience, Crystal? Oh, I don't know if I've ever considered that question. I have to think about that for a second. The purpose of the human experience. Oh, man. Um, I think it's, I hope, I hope it's to, you know, have love and joy for each other and not just to, you know, leave buildings and have history. I'd like to hope that, you know, it's, it's about being connectedness. I hope is the purpose because I know that, you know, we as human beings are very social creatures, whether or not, you know, we want to believe that. And I hope that's, you know, something that, especially coming away from this pandemic, that Hopefully that's something humanity can find because it, it does take a lot of vulnerability to want to connect with someone else. And it's not always a comfortable experience. So mm. I hope that's the purpose. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful answer and one that I would agree if that really it's something that's true. And I mean, that's why not? That would be a beautiful ending if there is such a thing yeah. as an ending to this. Yeah. Yeah. Connection. And with that in mind, human connection, then it, make, it makes me think about love. What is your mm. understanding of love? What is love to you? Oh, it's taken me a long time to learn to love love. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> love yeah. is hard. Love <laughs> takes work. Love yeah. takes patience. Um, I know there's that phrase, you know, love is patient, love is kind. And I remember hearing that at a wedding and it never made sense to me. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a feeling, right? It, it's not always a, a thing we can touch. Um, It's taken me a long time. I'm in a, a long-term relationship myself, so I'm still learning to love love. Yeah, I, I never heard it that way. <laughs> <laughs> learning to love love, right? Mm -hmm. Because not it's not easy, right? It seems like it's the work of healing, isn't it? Yeah. Costa? 
Mm-hmm. In the end, that might be it. The more we heal, the more we can love. The softer we become, the easier it becomes to be soft and peaceful. I think you're right. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. I, I never thought of it that way because it, it does take a lot of, uh, you know, lessening or softening to really be, be able to heal and then to have love. Another question, speaking of healing, what is the goal of emotional healing and what are the obstacles to it? Oof. Um... It probably depends on the person you're talking to, right? Because emotional healing is different for all of us. Um, For some of us, it might be to move from being just in survival mode into more of a a thriver or someone who's comfortable in their surroundings. Um, I know for me, it it takes a lot of, of empathy and mindfulness for me to find emotional healing and to work with the clients I work with to support them because it is a very almost terrifying journey because in order to find healing, we have to start with acknowledging or, you know, speaking the hurt or the pain that we feel to find it. And that's, that's a very hard place to be in. And I know a lot of the clients I work with find that there's a lot of stigma with feeling down or or feeling broken or feeling hurt and being able to use those words. It can be a daunting challenge. That's true. It's, um, the stigma of not being happy all the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, even talking about death, I notice a lot of people don't like that. I notice with my family members, no one wants to talk about death or pain. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's perceived as negative. Let's not mm-hmm. be reminded of all those things. But mm-hmm. it's important, it is, isn't it, in healing, the process of healing to be. But it's not even a reminder. It's the work of almost like rephrasing or recreating that experience through the light of healing, which means seeing in a different way. Hmm. Would you define healing, the process of healing in such a way, Crystal? Or or something different? Um, I think I like that definition. You know, you think about the process of healing, you know, we have to find it in a different way, which means we'd have to start from a different place than where we are. Um, and I like the word process because I, I think it is definitely a process. And, you know, when you think of a process, um, I always think of something like a conveyor belt, right? There's several steps it has to move through. There's parts where it stops. It goes fast. It goes slow. Kind of like the process of healing. Right. Yes. It really feels like that. And one of the questions that I have asked here is about if we can ever say that we are healed. Is that something that from your experience that can happen, be completely healed from trauma, from childhood trauma, in my case, abuse, mm-hmm. it, it still haunts me. Not a lot of times these days, so much better. It's almost not here anymore. From time to time, I have dreams and I can mm-hmm. see some of my responses to people's behavior that reminds mm-hmm. me of the past, my mother, yeah. and my father. So does it ever go away? That's my question. I don't know if I have that answer. I I'd like to hope it does. You know, like we we like to hope that, you know, trauma, we don't go through horrible things to have to have a learning experience from it. But I'd like to think we can be healed, but I wonder if it's more of healing, like you said. You know, it comes and goes, it pops up as reminders. Um, I don't know if we can ever be fully healed because especially with psychological trauma, um, you know, for people that go through that, we don't always have a way to go back to um, the person or the thing that caused the trauma and have full closure or full justice, so to speak, with what we've experienced. And 
it feels like that's, you know, what we want in order to silence it. Cause I've, I've learned working with trauma that trauma is a fickle beast. It's, it's very tricky and it presents very differently in everyone. And it leaves a different mark or a different leftover with each person it touches. And one of the things that I noticed with one family member that the traumas that he went through, his behavior was very negative. Like he was always expecting the worst to happen. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know where that was coming from. It, it was really annoying to me a lot of times because mm-hmm. everything seemed so nice, so good. Like, oh, isn't it wonderful to just rejoice and be happy about mm-hmm. what's happening? But he would always say, oh, this won't last. I know something will go wrong. And then I think I interviewed somebody here and he said, oh, a woman said, somebody said, trauma makes us see the world differently in a sense of always expecting negative things to happen. It's almost not mm-hmm. trusting life itself. Is that something that, and that might be a good time to talk about the imposter syndrome that I was not aware of. I think I heard before, but I, I didn't know that had to do with trust. We talked briefly off record today, and you mentioned self-trust. So talk to me about those two ideas, Crystal. I think it's, like you said, it, it can definitely leave a negative impact. You know, if, if you think about it is, like, let's say, you know, a child approaches someone that we trust for a basic need, right? And we get a response of, you know, we're hurt physically or we're hurt emotionally. And, you know, we keep trying to want to trust, right? We keep trying to repeat that same pattern with the same result. It can definitely lead, you know, the brain to going, well, even if I do it eight different ways, I will still have the same negative result. So I can definitely see how that, you know, would affect our perspectives. And we know that trauma also plays a role in resiliency and how elastic our our thinking is and how much are we able to bend or not necessarily bounce back, but come back. Because a lot of times with trauma healing, someone having very strong resiliency, you know, just the ability to, you know, have those challenges and not necessarily overcome them, but move with them. And, you know, to acknowledge that, you know, I have these issues and I'm still going to, you know, choose different or to be different in lieu of them or in spite of them. Um, and it's interesting, you know, you bring up the imposter syndrome because it, it typically has to do that. We feel like, you know, our success, it's like the feeling that our success has is directly related to our own efforts. So for me, I always struggle with, especially in medical social work, you know, there's so many, um, I work in a skilled nursing facility right now. Um, and we refer to patients as residents. So, for me, there's always a, another resident. There's another family member. There really is no end to the work, so to speak. Um, so it is it is very challenging for me to leave, you know, feeling that my efforts each day are worth a feeling of success at the end. So I try to look at it in terms of, you know, did I do everything I could do? You know, did I try to, you know, communicate as best I could? Is that what my focus was for today? Or, you know, was it making sure that, um, you know, Mrs. Smith, for example, you know, made sure that, you know, she saw the doctor she wanted to, you know, I, I focus on the small goals rather than the big goals. And that, and that can help with my imposter syndrome. Um, at least for me, it, it's um, very much connected to medical experiences. What inspired you to become a therapist and a medical social worker, Crystal? That's a funny question. And I have a very interesting answer um, because, you know, like everyone else, my path was not a straight and narrow, you know, I grew up wanting to be, it was not, it was not for me. Um, I grew up wanting to be Indiana Jones, so to speak. I wanted to go out and and have adventures and a great hat and, you know, travel. (laughs) 
And that sounded like the way to go. And um, it changed. Um, So when I was 16, um, on my 16th birthday, oddly enough, um, I was diagnosed with a type of blood cancer called Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, So it led to me needing several rounds of chemo and radiation. So this would have been sophomore year of high school, um, which was a big challenge for me because the school I went to uh, required you to be there in um, and participating with an art. So you were there for vocals or singing or you were there for acting and I was there for dancing, which you have to be physically present and healthy to do. Um, so the, it was, it was definitely a huge resiliency test in terms of, you know, how can we do this and still be healthy? Um, so it was, it was not an easy process to say the least. Um, so from there, um, I went into recovery for another year and I relapsed my senior year. So I essentially, uh, I essentially spent most of high school out of the classroom. I was doing school from home, um, So I was able to go to college because of a scholarship um, due to my cancer diagnosis. So uh, as one of my friends put it, you know, if you'd never, you know, struggled, you would never have gone to college. And it's a great point. You know, this was a horrible thing that happened to me. And I was able to find something for it that led to further meaning, which for me at the time made a lot of sense because, you know, being 16 and trying to understand bone marrow density and white blood cell count I know those words now and I learned them then, but it was, it's like learning another language in the medical field. Um, And I had to take a lot of ownership um, because, you know, my parents did not have a college level education or literacy level. Um, So, you know, that was a lot of um, adulting upfront, so to speak. Um, So when I got to college, um, you know, I decided to change and I wanted to be a marine biologist and I couldn't do that because I can't have oxygen because of the damage to my lungs during treatment. Um, So I did a lot of volunteer work and I had been doing it since I was a child. And I had a friend who was in the social work track approach me and I'll never forget the way she phrased it. She said, you volunteer all the time. Why don't you be a social worker? That's like a professional volunteer. Yeah. Yeah. As a social worker for over 10 years, it is not a professional (laughs) volunteer, (laughs) but I love that mindset because it made so much sense. Like I have a way to have a career with helping people. No one told me, sign me up. Um, And I essentially went from there to here. Yeah. What an interesting story, as you said. (laughs) It's very much a story. Yeah. I'm sorry about uh, the cancer um, experience when you were very young. Did you contemplate the possibility or the idea of death at that time? Oh, I I very much so did. Um, So it was, uh, so death was brought to me in terms of numbers, um, right as I was diagnosed, which, you know, turning, you know, 16, I was thinking about, you know, like maybe having a sweet 16. And, you know, it was, it's funny you say that because we were actually, um, the day before my birthday, I'd gone to the doctor's office for a mass on my neck which, you know, for months I thought was a muscle because I dance and dancers have weird muscles. And, you know, I showed my parents the week before and, you know, immediately they were like, nope, we need to get this checked. Um, You know, so we went to the doctor and the doctor was like, well, it could be a lot of things, you know, we'll call you, just stay by your phone. Very general, you know, nothing to worry about. Um, So my dad had actually taken me to um, a hotel where, you know, he was able to, we were trying to plan a sweet 16. I was their oldest child. It was a really big deal. 
And we were sitting there and he got the phone call and it was really hard for him to be able to say what was being said. So I was past the phone and it was the same doctor who then said, you know, it's a matter of life or death. You have to get to the hospital. Um, so immediately we go from celebrating life to throwing the word death in, which doesn't really make sense. And it was, it was maybe the word is touch and go for a while there. Um, and I remember, um, the next day. So after surgery, I had to change hospitals because not every hospital offers the same treatment. So the doctors at the larger one were phenomenal and they sat me down because, you know, insurance has to cover the treatment you get. And the more likely you are to survive with a cancer diagnosis, the more likely you are for your insurance to cover your treatment, um, which I learned as an adult working in that field as the patient, I didn't. Um, and I was told my initial survival rate was about a 75% chance, um, which to me sounded pretty good because it wasn't 50, 50, um, like the you know popular movie, it wasn't 50, 50, um, and then the second time around when I relapsed, um, my survival went down to about 35%. Um, and we, you know, had to advocate with insurance and do all of that. So we were very much so contemplating, you know, morality, mortality, you know, what does this look like? How do we decide? Do we talk about this? Is it something we share? Because, you know, the patient's not an adult where we can have an adult conversation the patient is a teen and it's a very, a very different, a very emotional conversation, especially with family. Is that something that it's common in a sense of um, talking about death with patients that are, that could actually die? And with that in mind, also, I want to bring the topic of one of the articles that you made aware to me. It reads, Canada has legalized medical assistance and dying. I never mm -hmm. heard of this before, M-A-I-D. So I'd love to hear from you. What is your perspective in, wow, assisting somebody to die? That is, sounds like it's not a euthanasia, is it? Chris, it's different, right? From it, that? It's not. It's it's so yeah. different. Um, so I worked uh, briefly with children who face cancer diagnoses and their family, um, which was very much a part of me healing, um, and also a part of me proving something to myself and, you know, being able to step into that role. It was, it was a conversation we did have with families about, you know, talking about planning for end of life, which, you know, looked about, you know, planning a funeral. If you have other children, how do we care for them? What do holidays look like? Um, and it's a very different conversation with the adult residents we have because in a nursing facility, some residents may come in for a short period of time and then return home or transfer elsewhere. And others, you know, this is their home because they may not have family to care for them or be able to hire help at home. And this is where they need to be in order to get the care they need, not only to be healthy, but to hopefully be happy. Um, so, you know, for a lot of the residents I work with now, death is very much a topic of conversation. Um, we even do quarterly screeners for um, depression, signs and symptoms. And one of the questions is thoughts about hurting yourself or wanting to be dead. And very much so a lot of our residents in their 90s, they report feeling tired. You know, they've, they've been in this body for a long time. You know, my, my bones are sore. There's, there's a lot of tiredness with that. And I think being in a facility and seeing others who are ill or may share their same healthcare setting um, brings it up a lot. So we do often, you know, have conversations with family about end of life, about end of life planning, 
um, or hospice. And um, unfortunately, in Florida, um, patient or doctor uh, assisted suicide is not legal. So it's not an option for our residents. But I know in some other states it is. And I hear that often, you know, from residents, you know, how, how do I do that? How can I get there? Um, you know, what can I do? So we do often then transition to um, a hospice or a palliative care conversation. Is that something that you are in agreement with or are you in, in between? Yeah, I'd love to hear your mm. input. I, I don't, right now, I don't have an opinion either way because I think the most important part is supporting the person who no longer wishes to exist. Because I, I think supporting them and their family's decisions, you know, if that's what they wanted to do, I would be more than happy to help them climb every mountain or every bridge to get them what they need. And for a lot of families, you know, talking about death is not something they want to talk about. So if that is the case, I'll support that. You know, I'll, I'll let the team know, you know, we won't move in that direction. And I always think back to my experience because if I had been given the option to not be in pain and to live a pain-free existence, I think I would take that because for me, you know, having happiness and joy means that there's no physical pain. So I can only imagine, you know, what it feels like to have to live with that level of physical pain. You work at Buena Vida Wellness and there you provide walk and talk services. I have heard mm -hmm. this before. So I'd love to hear more about the difference between walking and talking as a therapist or and mm -hmm. sitting and talking. What mm -hmm. is the main difference? <laughs> well, other than walking, um, there is a couple different differences. Um, yeah. So I did some experiential therapy training when I got my master's in Colorado, um, which was great because they're naturally situated to have a lovely outdoor experience. And being able to walk with someone, um, you know, because in, in traditional therapy setting, you know, we sit across or next to, so it feels like, or it looks like, you know, we are with that person, you know, in their trenches, in their battlefield. And, you know, for a lot of people that works. And um, the other reason, you know, we don't have an office space is to cut down on overhead. So that way our services are much more financially approachable for those that may not have a lot to pull from. Um, so being able to walk with someone and being able to do it next to a lake or a beach or trees or grass, it helps put in perspective, you know, the challenges we have that can feel so big or so insurmountable. Um, I had a client this week feel that she was struggling so much with her partners and being able to sit and look at the beach, she was able to reach her insights without the therapist necessarily having to guide her. So, um, you know, being able to actually walk with the client, you know, through their journey, um, it seems to be very powerful. And we also know that, you know, when there's physical activity, the parts of the brain that have been damaged or that are linked to emotions or to healing, they um, react differently and there can actually be greater um, a greater possibility for um, healing or for healing to be continued. Um, rather than for it to stop, because anytime we do physical activity, it, you know, releases endorphins, it helps monitor stress levels. And, you know, for someone with a trauma background or um, PTSD diagnosis, being able to be physical or physically active, you know, even just walking to a bench and walking back to our cars at the end of the session can be really meaningful. 
So I love the idea. Is this something that's new, Chris, to this uh, approach? Or it's actually not new and I have not heard about it. I just heard <laughs> it recently. Um, I think it might be growing in some therapy circles. Um, uh, from what I know, uh, the practice Buena Vida Wellness is one of the, at least the only ones I know of in Palm Beach County that offers it. But with experiential therapy, um, it started in the eighties. Um, and I'm forgetting the name of the group that would take teens outdoors. Um, and granted it started as a horrible experience where, you know, we would take teens who had challenges into the woods of Michigan in the winter and expect them to survive. Um, that's not really therapeutic at all, but I can see where we got to that at that time in history. Um, so it has evolved. So I, I think that's the place it started from because, you know, being able to, conquer something like uh, whitewater rafting or hiking a trail. Um, it can lead to that self-gratification. So, you know, someone like me that struggles with imposter syndrome, if something that I struggle with is something that I can overcome and do it with others who can bear witness to, you know, facing that challenge, that can lead to, you know, greater ownership and acceptance of one's abilities. I can see that too. Self-trust, right? Yeah. That sounds um, good and not so good at the same time, yep. <laughs> putting ourselves in that, that situation. I know a lot of people have fun with roller coasters. They go mm -hmm. on. I can never see myself doing that. It seems like putting myself in a position to suffer. <laughs> it's almost mm -hmm. like asking for suffering. But some people have fun with that. So we are so different, aren't we? You may be mm -hmm. so unique. Mm -hmm. Gosh, I'll talk to you forever. I have the, I want to talk about the tarot therapy. But before mm -hmm. that, I want to say that I love the article about the lessons. It reads, a social worker's perspective, what lessons does the pandemic offer us? So there are a list of the lessons that have been learned. So from your perspective, Crystal, what have you learned personally and as a social worker? What were the the main insights and lessons learned? Oh, um, I think for me, it was very much learning how to be on your own um, because when the pandemic happened, rather than, you know, providing therapy with people, um, it was, it changed to what felt like providing therapy to people over telehealth. Um, so I had to be very comfortable, you know, being in one place and not being able to move or, or have that freedom. Um, so I really, I realized I took flexibility for granted. Um, and I didn't realize that until I lost it. Um, so if, for me, especially as a social worker, being able to be flexible and, and being able to, um, you know, move through the challenge, especially in the medical field, it's, it's daunting because with so many people on COVID isolations or in an ICU or on a ventilator, it feels like it just does not stop. It feels like there's no end in sight. Um, and it, it led to a lot of burnout, you know, all across the medical field and social work as well. So the idea with flexibility, you know, letting yourself know when it is time, you know, to, to leave the work at work and when it is time to come back um, because burnout is, is a huge challenge and not being able to escape that. Um, and then seeing it, you know, everywhere, you know, it's on the radio, it's on the news. We talk about it at home. Our families might have it. Um, it really felt like there was no escape. So that flexibility was definitely, um, at least for me, it wasn't something I, I thought I would ever take for granted. And I'm really happy with it. And I think, I hope, 
um, you know, my flexibility has increased because that and, and being patient with people because, you know, in the medical field, the doctor, the nurse, the medical practitioners look to as the expert and we are not on their level. That family member doesn't know the same thing that an endocrinologist or a neurologist does. So being able to have patience for them to, you know, have their own learning and then make their own conclusion as well um, is definitely something I've learned as a social worker. You made me think about Sarah Kay Smolings is one of my guests. We have done a lot of work together and that's exactly mm -hmm. what she talks about on and on and on. She writes about and she is an advocate for prevention of burnout. That's mm -hmm. the main topic. And you remind me of her now. And she talks on and on and on about self-care and um, just turning the attention to ourselves as well. It's so crucial. And then she goes deeper into it, of course, with uh, mm -hmm. even dressing our own um, social workers, addressing their own traumas and taking care of themselves emotionally too, physically, emotionally in every way. And the lessons, I love the flexibility. They One of the lessons that they in that article they mentioned is to live with gratitude. That caught my attention. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's talk about the role of tarot and therapy. What is tarot for those who don't know? And how did you discover this integration, the possibility to integrate tarot and therapy? Um, so tarot in a very basic definition form um, it's referring to tarot cards. It's usually spelled T-A-R-O-T. -T, so it sounds like tarot, yeah. um, which, yeah. you know, I think you can pronounce it whatever way you want. We probably know, you know, what we're all talking about. <laughs> um, but it usually okay. has to do with the cards, you know, that have the pictures, an image or a symbol, and they can be used to, or they're commonly thought, you know, to use to predict the future. Um, so, so for me, um, I have a Jewish Romanian heritage, um, so I've learned that, um, you know, a part of my family actually used to do that um, before transitioning through Europe and coming to America. Um, so I learned about doing it within therapy because um, I was always curious about it. I'd, I'd had a deck of cards when I was younger and, um, you know, I kind of play with them. I'd, I'd look at them. I like the pictures. I didn't really understand, you know, as a, a teen or young adult, you know, what exactly this meant. I just thought it, you know, was such a great part of, you know, my heritage I didn't know about. And I had a supervisor that was explaining to me, you know, all these different things that you can do in therapy that can have meaning to people. And I remember sitting there going, wait a minute, I can use these to help others. And she's, of course, because it's a, it's a, it's a talking piece. Um, you know, it's not always appropriate for everyone, but, you know, for those that are open to it, because, you know, it can definitely conflict with some ideas of organized religion. Um, but for some, you know, who, who want to seek, you know, meaning from outside or, um, even those of us that enjoy astrology, you know, having that direction that, you know, speaks to us. Um, I'm an Aries. I strongly identify with that sign. I am a Ram through and through when I stick to something I am not letting go. And, but that's just the way it is. Um, and I've accepted that about myself. So I know that, you know, the cards speak, you know, to me sometimes and sometimes they don't. It, it's a very unique and very personal experience for everyone. That sounds wonderful because of the spiritual component that caught my attention big time. So is that something that would be allowed actually legally in a therapy room or it's something that it has to be accepted by the community? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, so the legal legality is very much a gray area. 
Um, my understanding is of it is, and when I use it with clients, we have completely separate consents for it because it is not psychotherapy. Um, it is, it is not meant for everyone, you know, someone that might have, um, obsessive or compulsive tendencies or, um, struggle with a personality disorder. It is not appropriate with them, um, because, you know, we are then making connections or creating a bond that is inappropriate in the therapy space. Um, so if I do use it with someone, you know, we, we generally have, you know, a couple sessions ahead of time where we're discussing it and talking about their why, um, and then if they do decide there are completely separate consents for that in therapy, um, you know, with the idea that it is a talking point, you know, if someone feels stuck or um, if someone is struggling with something, you know, I, I can use the cards if that's something the client wants to do as well and see if that's a way to move forward. Because, you know, when we feel stuck, having a jumping off place or, you know, even if a card is pulled even just the color, you know, like, is this what you expected? You know, what was this experience like for you? And talking from that perspective can help them, you know, find their insight or find, um, you know, what they were looking for. I love the symbols. Um, the symbols, mm -hmm. they speak so powerfully to us, almost at the uh, subconscious level. Well, some mm -hmm. would say at the soul level. Like in your case, just being attracted to tarot cards without knowing your ancestry. Mm -hmm. It amazes me how... The body carries all these uh, imprints from the past, and it seems like we are talking and everything that we do, it's actually coming from that uh, heritage, mm -hmm. from that background, but we are not aware of it. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right there. It's so interesting. There's a connection there because I, I know I didn't expect that. And um, my first connection with them, you know, spiritually in my early 20s, I had a tea leaf reading done in um, New Orleans in all places And it was such an odd experience for me because it was not what I expected. And yet it was the most amazing thing because having someone I don't know reflect things that make sense about me can feel like therapy. So it, it helped me understand, you know, now that I use it, why it, it can be so helpful for, for those that want to. There's something else that caught my attention, that article. I mean, I'm going to read the part that I have here. I'd never heard it this way before. I think it was about um, an experience that somebody had had with time. And then, but the section says, you can always choose not to feel so resentful of people taking up your time. So the conversation was about time, um, somebody being resentful because of that. So you just need to decide to give less of your time. You'll feel guilty instead, but guilt will fade and resentment only builds. That I didn't know. So feeling guilty is better than feeling resentful. I'm not saying that's a good thing, both of them. Right. But does it have to do with boundaries? Because this is something that I have struggled my whole life. <laughs> Always trying hmm. too hard to please everybody around me and forgetting about myself. And then feeling guilty and then also then resentful at the same time. So it has been such a big mess. So mm -hmm. have you heard of this before? That Did you come across these two emotions, guilt and resentment in this way? Yeah, I think, um, you know, like the, like the quote said, they can definitely come hand in hand. And, you know, especially like you said, with your experience, you know, you work so hard and then you still feel like you let people down. It it seems like guilt might be the reaction that comes up first. Right. Um, right. I know I feel guilty when I walk out and I feel like I could do more or I know I left and the phone was ringing and it never feels like enough. And I think it can turn to resentment 
like the quote said about time, you know, if we, we have that guilt and we either continue to turn away from it, or we don't acknowledge that, you know, it's okay if we didn't do enough and feel bad about it, because we can have both of those feelings. You know, I can feel guilty about not doing or feeling like I've done enough and want to do more because it, it seems like those two go hand in hand. And then that, that resentment, I think that, I think it's right. I think that the resentment is definitely something that would stick around longer because, you know, guilt is becoming a word we use more so. Um, like I know in, in my family's heritage, they talk about Jewish guilt. Um, it's very much a, a big thing um, that plays a role, but we don't really talk about resentment. Um, so it's interesting that way. We're almost at the end, Crystal, but before I ask you my final questions, would you like to add anything that you left unsaid for today? Um, I think I, I want to just add this about tarot. If you are, you know, feeling curious, not curious, angry, whatever it is about it, um, I always suggest, you know, trying it, you know, maybe you pick up something because they're becoming much more mainstream in bookstores or, um, you know, we, we know crystal shops and tarot tend to coexist. Um, so I, I always suggest, you know, seeking out the truth for yourself because, you know, a lot of times our decisions are informed by things that, you know, we don't always know are ours or not. Um, and, you know, being able to be comfortable with yourself to, you know, try something new and maybe it's for you and maybe it's not, but giving it, you know, the time and the experience to try it might be interesting. Is that something that's a personal thing? We get one for ourselves. And if I want to do I get one for my husband too? Or <laughs> like, I'm just, I want everybody to be. I know that's a good question. Yeah. For me. Um, so I'm very, I'm very personal with my cards. Um, so if I pull cards, um, so, you know, sometimes people ask me to go to events and, and pull. Um, so I do a lot of cleansing and, and so much, uh, like cleaning of the cards. Um, and I, I'm also very particular. There's, there's one deck that I ask others not to touch. Um, because I I, I want to keep, you know, the energies, I want to try to control the energies it comes into contact with, because for me, it, it feels like a, a deck that holds a lot of power. Um, and then there's others that um, there are more oracle cards um, are a little easier to um, be open to interpretation, you know, like it, it might, you know, give an image of a full moon, and then more words at the bottom as to what that might mean versus a traditional set where you might pull a three of aces. Um, and it, it, it leads the the person getting the cards pulled to be able to join in on the conversation with an oracle deck. So everyone's different. Um, I had I had a tarot reader pull my cards and he had said that his partner made him a special box. So each compartment held the deck of cards together. Um, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I, I think if you found one and maybe, you know, you think your husband might like it and you want to share it, or if you think, you know, they might be more attracted to a different deck. Yeah, I think it's a good thing to explore. It kind of resonates to me having your personal set of cards nah, and keeping them in certain places. And another question is about, um, do we do any preparation in the sense of a prayer or meditation um, before pulling in any cards or we just um, do it? That's a good question. Uh, you can. I think every practitioner approaches it differently. Um I haven't asked a lot of people that pull cards. Um, it's typically what, you know, what it's called when you do the, the reading, the pull cards. Right, right. Yeah, um, yeah. I haven't asked a lot of people. Um, I know for me, um, so I do a lot of mindfulness in my own space. So for, you know, me, me taking a breath, 
clearing my headspace. Um, that way I can be open to receive, you know, what is coming in from the other person. Um, for me, that's helpful. Um, some people like a prayer. Um, each deck can come with a guidebook and, you know, some of them will suggest saying a few words or a specific set or a prayer, you know, before beginning or ending with the cards. Um, so I think it's more about that ritual and, and that routine for everyone that makes it so personal. And that made me think about you being a, um, psychic or having those intuitive abilities. And that's also, it might be the case. I think we all do, all of us mm -hmm. human beings, but some people, they have, uh, they have this, it's a call for them. And mm -hmm. it feels like in your case, it's a call. That's the feeling that I'm getting here, if I'm using my mm -hmm. intuition, <laughs> mm -hmm. if that's the case, that you have that call. Hi, that's very wonderful to know. So in a healing, being a healer and intuitive, of course, they go hand in hand. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Crystal, for your presence. Thank you. What is freedom to you? Or what is another word for freedom? Hmm. I haven't thought about that. Um, but as soon as you said that, it took me back to, um, a conversation I had with someone, um, where we were talking about what you wanted to do in life. And it was a group of us, um, and everyone was saying different career roles. And right before I spoke, the girl before me said, I want to be happy. I, I don't, it's not about money. It's not about where I live. I just want to be happy. Um, so I, I think freedom for me has to do with happiness or joy, um, and being able to, to have that in the work that I do or, or the days that I have, yeah. I think that's freedom to me. Mm, yes. Um, beautifully said. Yes. I hear wisdom there because that's <laughs> one of our humanities. That's if you think everyone, that's what we are looking for. Uh, happiness, mm -hmm. isn't it? We're all trying to get there and stay there <laughs> forever. Yeah. So freedom, it's uh, freedom, happiness, they go together. And my last question is, what is one experience you wish everyone to have before they lose the body, before they die? Oh, that is a great question. Oh, goodness. Um, okay, I'm going to answer this twofold. Um, the first one I'm going to say, because it's an entirely personal experience, is skydiving. It, it, is, it is terrifying. It is not for everyone. And it is such an amazing way to see Earth. Um, because, you know, not all of us will be able to leave the planet and see the planet, you know, from space. Um, and when I had my experience, um, you know, you, when, when you go up, you go up in a plane and they take you to a certain height, you have your parachute. I was attached to someone because I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert at all. Um, and you know, they have you rock, they have you sit with your legs dangling out of the plane to start. So that's just kicks in the fear right there. Um, and I remember trying to be so calm and like, you know, I'm going to look, I'm going to look calm. I'm not going to show fear. I'm going to be okay. And, you know, we rock back and forth and we fall. And I remember I started screaming and then I stopped because I just started to see, um, what was around and there were clouds and, and blue and green and homes. And it was such a unique way to, make me remember that I am one small part of one very big, big place. And that is the reason I recommend that experience. Um, and I think the second one is going to be therapy. And I don't say that because I'm a therapist. Um, I say that because to be able to, you know, get to know yourself better, 
I think can only lead to more happiness, more comfort in yourself. And it's like putting on our own oxygen mask. It allows us to help ourselves. So, you know, we can help our fellow woman and man around us even more. Beautiful message. So for everyone out there that's not willing to do the skydiving, therapy <laughs> is a second option. Yes. <laughs> which I agree wholeheartedly. Yes. Yeah. Healing leads to freedom for sure. And therapy has everything to do with it. Self-knowledge, self-trust, self-everything before we can be something else for other people, that beautiful self for others over the world. So thank you so much again, Krista, for your presence here today, for everything that you're doing in this reality, for the help as a guide, as a healer, as a therapist. Ah, I love the word healer and everything else in between that could be felt today. Thank you so much for your beautiful, beautiful, beautiful presence and message. No, thank you. It was an honor. And before we say goodbye for today, where can we find more information about you and the work you do? Um, so you can find me on the Buena Vida uh, Wellness website, um, which is, uh, I believe it is Buena Vida uh, fl.com. I share that, uh, with the therapist who manages the private practice named Megan Kasabe. Um, and I'm on psychology today. Um, uh, I, hello Alma, uh, LinkedIn, all of the great social media. And if not there, you might find me uh, paddling on the ocean if uh, we run into each other. <laughs> that sounds wonderful too. I'll have mm -hmm. the link on your podcast profile. Thank you so much again, Crystal, and we'll talk soon. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Crystal McGrady and her work, please visit buenavidafl.com backslash crystal-mcgrady-lcsw. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.